Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And I also have some good stuff in a blog that I've been writing in for about, I don't know, two and a half years now. And the name of the blog is cagerredux.com, C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X.com. All right. In the last episode, we talked about setting the table a little bit for this next really important phase in the perfect storm that has defined one of the most fundamental periods of change in the history of college sports. And it's not over yet. We're still deep in it. We just have this little lull now that the name, image, and likeness madness has calmed down a little bit. And then we have the Senate, who is going to be really the power player along with the power five and dictating what college sports looks like going forward. They're in recess and they're not going to be back until the end of August. So I thought as I get back on track with walking through the events of the perfect storm, that's going to be this period between May of 2019 and the present, I thought it would be really important to talk more about some of the fundamental underpinnings of college sports and how they relate to American values and how we have historically engaged in this profound hypocrisy between the desire for perfectibility through American competition and uh, winning and wanting to be number one, competing for prestige, competing for power, competing for money, all the things that are essential to um, the American value system, and then trying to fit those quintessentially American values and qualities into a 19th century British ideology. It just, it doesn't work on so many levels. One of the things that I tried to do early in the podcast was to tap into that fundamental inconsistency. And in my second episode in this podcast titled Red Grange Transistors, Two Nights and Genomics, I talk about the fundamental question in American higher education and its relationship to big-time college sports. That is, why are institutions of higher education in America in the business of big-time college sports? One of the resources that was really influential as I was just starting back into my thinking on the business model of big-time college sports was a book by Ronald Smith, and he is a sports historian And I think he's at Penn State University. He's a well-respected historian. He was one of, I think, four or five historians who filed a friend of the court brief in the Austin suit talking about the history of amateurism. The uh, authors concluded that it was really nothing more than a sham and a cover for an obviously commercialized and professionalized enterprise. But It's titled Sports and Freedom, The Rise of Big-Time College Athletics, and it was published in 1988. More than any of the books that I have read on college sports and all of the resources that I have relied on in my blog and my podcast really captures at the values level this fundamental tension and what is beneath it 
You have to go back to the earliest iterations of big-time college sports, and that really dates back to the late 19th century, early 20th century. And it really focused around competition between the big three, Harvard, Yale, and Princeton. I haven't gone too deep in the weeds on the history. And so many of the histories of big-time college sports start with what is generally perceived to be the very first intercollegiate athletic contest in 1852. And that was a rowing contest between Harvard and Yale. And even in that event, there were obvious commercial influences in terms of sponsorship. There was a prize that was awarded. And it really stoked this sense of competition for prestige and power and publicity and social currency and money, ultimately money, that have come to define intercollegiate athletics and the identities of big-time universities in higher education. There's this massive competition now for attention and for prestige and publicity. And while American institutions of higher education want to profess to the outside world that they are immune from uh, all of the forces that drive us to measure ourselves against our peers and to strive for perfectibility and to compete in ways that allow us to to measure where we stand. And that's done through big time sports and the success of the programs and actual rankings and ratings and championships. Now we're doing it on the academic side through the same measures. And the U.S. News and World Report rankings are a perfect example of that. These university presidents and administrators will look you right in the eye and say that those rankings have absolutely no influence on how they conduct their business because they're above that. (laughs) But behind the administrative veil, and I have seen this up close and personal, when a big-time university takes a hit in the rankings, there is panic. There's absolute panic. Everybody wants to think that they are associated with the best, the best brand, the best minds, the best sports teams. That is quintessentially American. In Smith's book, he wrestles with that at a values level and importantly in the context of what universities actually want. And He has a quote, actually a couple of quotes I just want to put out there and and use as a template as we move into discussing this next phase of the quest for the Iron Throne of College Sports Regulation, and then also a look back at how this perfect storm has played out, because it's really important to understand the motivations and values of the interests that are shaping the future of college sports right now. And those come in large part from what are now the Power Five universities, these 65 schools that include some of the nation's most powerful and prestigious universities. But in his book, Sports and Freedom, Professor Smith says this in in terms of the conflict between values and action. From the standpoint of the promotional versus the educational aspects of college sport, little has changed from the pattern created by Harvard, Yale, and other Eastern colleges in the 19th century. 20th century big-time athletics became a ritual for nearly all major universities, symbolizing in physical form the intense competition for prestige existing among the various institutions. Winning athletic teams were the most visible signs of the contests for prestige taking place in all areas 
of university life. That nails it. This battle for prestige, this battle for branding, this battle for superiority or the perception of superiority is really the fuel that drives the engine of higher education. And universities go to extraordinary extremes to enhance their brand, enhance their power, enhance their prestige, and to manage the perception of all of those qualities. Some people would say that value system has become really an end to itself. I've talked to people over the years about the change in higher education and the change in the value system and this substitution of money as a measure of quality and prestige. And the battle for money is another way that these schools can measure themselves against their peers. And for elite institutions, the endowment is the symbolic measurement of that power. And the size of your endowment equates to the quality of your product. And there is a battle for having the largest endowment. And there is endowment envy that is a powerful motivator in the quest for publicity, prestige, and branding. But Smith also goes on to say, when he's talking about this historic hypocrisy between the amateurism values of college sports and then this desire and this demand in the American market for the most professionalized, commercialized product that you can provide, he calls that the amateur professional dilemma. And he says, this historic amateur professional dilemma, which existed almost from the very beginning of intercollegiate athletics in American colleges, remains into the early years of the 20th century and well beyond. American colleges practiced a type of professionalism and yet they claimed amateurism. This dilemma resulted from the need to protect college sport from outside criticism by using acceptable amateur language while at the same time desiring the prestige and status which came from a highly professionalized model that produced excellence and winning. And let me see, I don't know if I can find this quote, but he talks about the intense competition after the big three, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, really set the template for using athletics as a way to elevate brand and elevate prestige and elevate power. Smith says there was a ritualized cloning of that. And some of that was due to historical factors, the passage of the moral Acts, one in, I think, in 1862, the other in 1890, that allowed state universities to acquire land for the building of big universities. And that really ratcheted up the higher education market. You had this cloning of that whole mentality as a way to develop brand and to bring in money and to get all the things that institutions of higher education crave. And one of the most effective ways to deliver that And I talked about this in this episode too. One of the most direct delivery methods for publicity, for power, for prestige, for social currency, and for money is big-time college sports. This thinking really goes back to the 1920s. And in this Carnegie report in 1929, 
And I believe this was in the preface. So I, I talked about Henry Pritchett, and he was head of the Carnegie Foundation. And he wrote the preface to the 1929 Carnegie Report on American College Athletics. And the title of that preface was Athletics, an Element in the Evolution of the American University. And it was then, after the big three, Harvard, Princeton, Yale, were really uh, pressing football. Football was the big thing. Walter Camp at Yale really invented American football, and he's considered the father of American football. And the competition among Big Three in football and the building of these uh, stadiums in the early 20th century, I think that Harvard's first stadium held 40,000, and then uh, Yale built one that was even bigger, and there was this kind of stadium construction race, and there was stadium envy. <laughs> so you, you had these American values of competition spurring all of this activity built around football. Again, the excesses in football and the competitive demands that were built into keeping up with the other universities really spurred this 1929 Carnegie report, which I view as really a condemnation of big time football. But big time football was really coming into its own around this time. You also have to remember that in its earliest iterations, intercollegiate athletics in the United States was student-run. So this was an extracurricular intramural activity that was run by students. And then as people like Walter Camp began to take that student energy and provide some structure to it that allowed the sports, intramural sports world, to become more and more commercialized and professionalized, then the universities saw the value in it. The universities came in and, and they basically took it over because they viewed it as a direct line to all the things that universities want. And so in Pritchett's preface, he says this, and this is really answering that fundamental question of why are big time universities in this business? So Pritchett says, into this game of publicity, the university of the present day enters eagerly. It desires for itself the publicity that the newspapers can supply. It wants students. It wants popularity. But above all, it wants money and always more money. The athlete is the most available publicity material the college has. A great scientific discovery will make good press material for a few days, but nothing to compare with that of the performance of the first-class athlete. Thousands are interested in the athlete all the time, while the scientist is at best only a passing show. That was true in 1929. It is even more true today. And we can have a philosophical debate about priorities and whether that's a good thing. And I discussed that in my episode two in the context of some anecdotal stories about our misplaced values. So I would urge you to check out that episode. It has some good stuff, I think. But as we're heading into this perfect storm in the 21st century that is going to redefine the business of big-time college sports, it's important to keep those values in mind because th that is really the underlying motivation that these institutions have at the institutional level, and they have been in this game of hypocrisy, the amateur professional dilemma, really for over a century now. It has been finely honed and tuned at the messaging level and at the structural level and how these institutional interests talk about college sports and it's still built around these ridiculous principles of amateurism and the collegiate model and the student athlete but they know from a business standpoint in order to get the best bang for their buck they have to offer the most 
highly professionalized, highly commercialized product because that's what Americans want. Americans want the best. They want the best product. And that explains why the Division I men's basketball tournament can get $1.1 billion a year and the Division Three men's basketball tournament, which is in a product that has no scholarships. It's the most amateur-like product in the entire NCAA structure. They lose money. And it's not that there's anything wrong with Division Three basketball. It's great basketball. But consumers don't watch it because in the way that we've structured the NCAA and structured intercollegiate athletics, it is by definition an inferior product to Division One sports and Americans want the best the best of the best. That's how we're wired. And that's part of what makes this country great. When you trace the history of college sports, if you do a timeline of the important events and milestones in college sports, you see the evolution of these fundamentally American instincts that are underpinning the big time college sports marketplace evolving as America evolves and as it becomes more powerful and as the technologies allow these products of prestige and power and influence to become more accessible. And that happened starting in the 1950s in the beginning of the television era. But you have a pretty clear pathway to how we got from this British conceptualization of amateurism to a highly professionalized product that when it's looked at honestly, as the U.S. Supreme Court did in the Austin case, you come away with really only one intelligent conclusion, and that is that this whole system, this whole value system that the institutions profess to the outside world in order to save face because they are engaging in an enterprise that many would say is fundamentally inconsistent with their basic mission. You have a unanimous decision basically saying that these professions, outward professions of amateurism are just a fraud, and they are. I think that in a culture and in uh, American higher education and in the big-time college sports world, Americans have internalized that hypocrisy, and they get it. They understand it. And that's one of the reasons why this whole discussion about defending the status quo through principles of amateurism is really just a, a fiction, because there is zero evidence, and this has come out in these antitrust suits, that if athletes get paid, then the market will collapse, and it's because everybody loves amateurism. That's simply not going to happen. And what will happen, I think, and it, it may be happening in real time in this limited nil marketplace, is that the people in system, the institutional stakeholders, and then the fan base, and then all of these uh, satellite interests that are involved in the business of big-time college sports, all the market participants, they're just going to change their definition of co what college sports is. There will just be new normal after new normal. But the fundamental characteristics of the relationship between the uh, consumers and the producers isn't going to change because the consumers are drawn to their institutions and they will convince themselves that there is some rational connection between the mission of the institution and this highly commercialized, professionalized product. That's just what we do. It's human nature. That, I think, is happening right now, and it's going to happen over the next two months. But I did a timeline in my blog, and I start in 1852 and go through to March of 2020, which was the beginning of the COVID shutdowns. The last event that I had in that timeline was the oral argument in the Ninth Circuit in the Austin case. 
I didn't pick up the timeline. I'm going to do that. I, I have done a name, image, and likeness specific timeline that's contained in a couple of posts. But I'm going to link to the timeline of inflection points in lieu of trying to do a complete history of college sports as I see it and what I think the important inflection points are. But I did a preface to that timeline to talk about some of these big picture value issues and some of the resources that have influenced me and the books that have influenced me in thinking about this, not necessarily from a pure dollars and cents standpoint, but from a why standpoint. Why are we in this business? And what are the consequences of being in this business? And increasingly, I don't think that the stakeholders are asking those questions anymore, but I think they're important to understand the motivations of the institutional stakeholders. You know, there was a time not too long ago, this was really true in the 1990s and then heading into the early part of the 21st century, there were a lot of academic interests that were openly critical of the existence of big time college sports. And the suggestion was that the increased professionalization and commercialization moved that enterprise farther and farther away from what should be the primary intellectual and academic mission of these universities. What I find interesting now is that in the discussions in this perfect storm in the last couple years, and heading through all of these important decisions and dynamics that are playing out right now in real time, there isn't much discussion about whether we have our priorities straight, whether big-time college sports are in conflict with the values of higher education. Those voices are gone. You no longer hear discussions about academic integrity, and you don't read about the Power Five athletes who made academic All-American. This is about money. The, the language has changed just in the last 20 years. I don't think it's coincidental that that happened to coincide with the aggregation of power, conference realignment, the power five, and the segregation of the, the interests of those 65 institutions from the rest of the college sports world. And they're getting all these things. They're just mainlining power, publicity, prestige, social currency, and branding, and all of the things that they want in order to remain competitive in the business of higher education and the quest for money and donations and all of that stuff. And one of the most important reasons why I think the language has changed and why we don't hear criticism from academic circles about the business of big-time college sports is Miles Brand's conceptualization of the collegiate model. And I did two episodes on that because it is so, so important. And Brand, as the first NCAA president who had been a former university president, he was at uh, Indiana University, he had credibility that the earlier NCAA presidents didn't. And he had that credibility in the academic community. And his definition of the collegiate model, as I set forth in those two uh, episodes, and I would urge you to listen to those. They're really important to understand where we are right now in 2021 in big-time college sports. But uh, there were two features of his conceptualization of the collegiate model that go directly to the hypocrisy in big-time college sports. And he was trying to resolve this hypocrisy between the outward professions of amateurism and then this highly professionalized, commercialized product. And he said, look, we have a duty 
to maximize revenue in football and men's basketball, the only two revenue-producing sports, because that's what universities do. They maximize revenue in areas where they can, and then they take that money to support other parts of the university that don't make money. And that, in this context, was really an interesting framework because in big-time college sports, you're basically adopting a framework that requires the massive diversion of wealth from black laborers to wealthy white interests. And again, that has gotten very little attention. But the other thing, the other way that Brand tried to reconcile this century-long hypocrisy was to say that amateurism defines the participants, not the enterprise. That was really his money quote from his 2006 State of the Association speech, which I broke down in some detail in the second installment of my discussion on the collegiate model. That is a profound statement. Going forward, using that conceptualization of the collegiate model, you have a built-in justification and buy-in by the educational industry and the uh, Power Five participants in the big-time sports marketplace to not worry about these hypocrisies. They're just, you know, part of the way that universities operate. And at a definitional level, he said that uh, athletics were inherently educational. So he came up with this really interesting formulation that is still being used today when you hear the college presidents and Mark Emmert says it, Rebecca Blank, the chancellor of Wisconsin-Madison testifying in the Senate in uh, September of 2020 was saying the same thing. They're using the same rationalization. And that brings you to a point where you're not asking whether there is conflict between the enterprise and the academic mission of the universities. They're just presumed to be in a perfect harmony. And they reside happily under the umbrella of higher education. But this notion that amateur defines the participants but not the enterprise is just breathtaking. That is the way that I think that the Power Five interests see the business side. They see the enterprise as a a rough and tumble, open free market business where they are there to make as much money as they can. And they do that under the umbrella of higher education, which uh, then allows them to engage in this hypocrisy of limiting the participants, the laborers, the people who make this money to being amateurs. I just find that really a stunning change in the language and change in the response of the academic interest, but it really informs what has happened in the perfect storm, and I think it's going to inform what will happen in the next, I don't know, three or four months. But the language has changed in a way that what we really talk about now is money, but we're still using the language of amateurism and the student-athlete to disguise that. And I think that tension is increasingly untenable. And I think that's really what you heard from the United States Supreme Court. And it was, again, it was in this narrow antitrust context and a very narrow ruling. But I think the unanimity there was sending a message. So as we're looking at this perfect storm, it's really important to understand what the underlying value system is, what universities really want how the discussion about the tension between the original purposes of higher education and this highly commercialized, professionalized, big-time college sports product, how those two have been really not only resolved, but there isn't even a discussion about whether that tension exists anymore, at least not at the institutional level. And you're not hearing much from the academic critics 
of big time college sports. So there seems to be some buy-in and reasonable people can differ about why that is. My my belief is that as the industry of higher education has become more competitive and more geared towards branding and prestige and equating that to the size of your bank account, that a lot of the fundamental principles of higher education have been obscured there. And instead of talking honestly about that as a, an, a dynamic in higher education, academic critics have tried to isolate big-time college sports and blame them, kind of the tail-wagging-the-dog syndrome. I'm not sure that's true. I think this is an industri- industry-wide movement. And now big-time college sports is simply viewed as an, an important tool in the toolkit of big-time institutions of higher learning to gain a competitive advantage. Which brings me to two of the most important themes that have been brought into this discussion in the perfect storm over the last two years. The first relates to gaining or avoid losing a competitive advantage in the talent acquisition market. And the second is labeling any people who operate outside of the control of the institutional interests as bad actors, and that would be the athletes themselves, agents, boosters, third-party contractors. All those people are deemed to be bad actors. 